Hello, and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host, and today's episode will focus on Mosaic Law. So for the update on where we are, this is Season 5. It's about a biblical argument for or against having a government or supporting a government or whether government is good, as well as how should a Christian live under a government? How should a Christian, uh, what should that relationship be between the Christian and the state? And that's mainly what I'm covering in season five, and that also extends from the state and government to a corrupt culture, corrupt society, these kinds of things, corrupt systems that we live in. So, With that, I've gone through some of the, I guess, most common places people will go on these subjects in the Old Testament, and now we are at Mosaic Law. So, I will focus on some specific aspects that I will pull out of Mosaic Law. I will not cover everything. I'm not going to cover all the 613 laws and all of the details and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going to pull out some things that I think are very relevant and that I think do shed light on things that we could apply today. So I will start by uh, reciting Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God said all these words, I am Adonai your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. You are to have no other gods before me. You are not to make for yourselves a carved image or any kind of representation of anything in heaven above, on earth beneath, or in the water below the shoreline. You are not to bow down to them or to serve them. For I, Adonai your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but displaying grace to the thousandth generation of those who love me and obey my commands." You are not to use lightly the name of Adonai your God, because Adonai will not leave unpunished someone who uses his name lightly. Remember the day, Sabbath, to set it apart for God. You have six days to labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath for Adonai your God. On it you are not to do any kind of work, not you, your son, or your daughter, not your male or female slave, not your livestock, and not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. This is why Adonai blessed the day, Sabbath, and separated it for himself. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land which Adonai your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not give false evidence against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So for a brief overview of this, the law consists of the Ten Words, which would be the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, and 613 further laws that build out upon these principles further. Together, they state God's principles of justice, governance, and societal organization for both individuals and the body politic. The most important part in regards to political theory is that there is no formal government established. That's a very big deal. There is no official ruler or bureaucracy. Laws are not enforced, and crime is not punished by a centralized authority. God's ideal, as should be expected, is very different than the ideals of the kingdom of man. 
the way God set up for a society to exist is mostly based on these 10 uh, moral statements, these 10 words. And it's not necessarily 10 commandments, because when you go back into the Hebrew, the first word, the first command, the first uh, thing that is said is, I am Adonai your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. That's number one. Number two is you have no other gods before me. And so the first word that is said, that is just a statement of who God is in recognition of that. And then the second is a command, you are not to do X, Y, Z. And it proceeds from that, you are to do this, you are not to do that, you are to do this, you are not to do that. And it's laying out a moral framework for how one should live and how a society should be set up. Then on top of that, it goes into detail on how these apply in certain situations with certain examples, uh, how it is to be actually carried out on a societal level, how this is to be applied as a governance system. All these kinds of things are laid out in the further 613 laws that uh, go after these 10 words. So uh, this is also very different from a, a modern governmental constitution or something of that sort. Those are typically not founded upon a statement of moral principle and acknowledgement of God. And that's just not where it is. And they come from human minds and human hands, human words. They don't come from God himself. And so there are some major differences there. And then when they get applied, like I said, the 10 words in this moral code is applied very differently. It's not applied in the form of a centralized government. No centralized government is created. Now, the first five statements of the Decalogue reference God and man relations, so man's relation to God. The second half references man-to-man relations, so how should a person relate to another person. The following 613 commands refer to both. These commands are given directly by God, as recorded in Exodus 20, and then are restated and elaborated upon again in Deuteronomy 5. This is when Moses gives his Sermon on the Mount of sorts before the people enter the Promised Land. And Yeshua later, recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, gives his Sermon on the Mount and elaborates on the same principles and commands himself. Yeshua's teaching will be addressed later and refer to the application of these principles under the structure of the current kingdom of God, which is different than the structure of the nation of Israel, the Hebrews as a people group. Um, This uh, Sermon on the Mount in Deuteronomy that Moses gives is in a different setting than the Sermon on the Mount that Yeshua gives, and these are very different things. I've talked before about the idea of the kingdom of God and how it has these different manifestations. And in the time period of Exodus and Deuteronomy, the kingdom of God has an actual physical representation that is structured and hierarchical and visible. It's a very physical thing and very material system that's set up. Whereas by Jesus's time, the kingdom of God is getting less 
material, more immaterial. It is, it does have physical representation, but not in as structured of a way and not in the same format. And so there are different contexts between the two, but they are both elaborating on the, these 10 words, all of it goes back to these 10 things that God says very directly. And all of these things are referenced much earlier than Mosaic Law. It's not like these are new things. Uh, murder is covered back at the beginning of Genesis. The Sabbath was covered at creation. You know, all of these things are, they're not new things. These are statements God does not change. These are statements that uh, go in line with what God has always said and what is true. And what is true always comes from God. So this earlier record of the Mosaic law given by God and taught by Moses, it refers to the physical kingdom of the people of God. This gives insight into how a physical nation would ideally be constructed, what is godly political theory, what is crime, and other very important subjects that we will get into. And again, we'll get into the aspects that Yeshua covers later. So for a little bit more on the structure of the law, many would further separate the law into three sections that would be moral, civil, and ceremonial. The most applicable here is civil, followed by moral. Personally, I believe that there are aspects of ceremonial law that still have purpose and would be pleasing to God, but I do not see them as being required. I personally do not find civil law as a requirement either in the context of the world we live in today, but it is the best way to make comparisons between how God designs and structures a nation or a society versus how man has chosen to do so through the centuries. As I made clear at the beginning, everything is based on the moral law. And that is the number one thing. That is what God holds us accountable, and everything else is an elaboration upon that. Which would be why I would say that ceremonial law is not necessarily a requirement, nor would civil law be, and especially given the different contexts, the different people groups, the different times in history, these types of things, and given the fact that all of these are just an elaboration of God's moral structure that he has stated that he has set up. That is the number one thing. But again, in the context of this episode, uh, civil law probably makes the most sense because that would be the direct comparison. So we do have an example of God setting up how a people group should organize. And we can look at that, and that will shed a lot of light on what we're looking into. So in relation to man-to-man relations, Mosaic Law roughly defines crime as harm or misuse of another person or their property. It could be argued similarly for God to man relations, since God's property could be defined as all creation, and any action outside of his will for his creation would be misuse or harm of his property. In contradistinction to other law codes, Mosaic Law has no crime against the state. There actually is no state established. There is only God. The state is a corrupt stand-in for this role of God's that claims to own all creation within its borders and claims to, claims to have the right to punish any action against its will. Basically, it's taking upon that role of God. 
This is, however, a farce and corruption. Of course, it's a perversion. Crime between humans always has a victim and a criminal. There is no victimless crime, period. It just it isn't a thing. In the following two examples that I'll get into, you can note that while one was supposed to take preemptive action, and that'll be building a fence or covering a hole, the lack of doing so does not lead to punishment or fines or prosecution. Instead, it is only when something occurs as a result of the foolish lack of precaution that crime has occurred. This only happens when there is a victim, whether human or a human's property. Also keep in mind that the guilt will be had in full. Neglecting to take precautions will cause you to be fully guilty of the death of a person or their property if such an act occurs, even if you are not guilty of crime beforehand for not taking the commanded precautions. So you don't have this gray area. You don't have this uh, aspect of someone coming in and forcing you to do something just because of what might happen in the future. That's not how this works. That's not how, uh, biblically, how crime is defined. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8, it says, When you build a new house, you must build a low wall around your roof. Otherwise, someone may fall from it, and you will be responsible for his death. And then in Exodus 21, verses 33 to 34, If someone removes the cover from a cistern or digs one and fails to cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in, the owner of the cistern must make good the loss by compensating the animal's owner, but the dead animal will be his. So that's making clear this principle that uh, people should do something. You should build this wall. You should cover a hole. You should take precautions. But doing this thing is not a legal matter that is enforced by the state. Again, there is no state, but not enforced by anybody. That's that's not when the crime has occurred. However, what it does say is that if someone falls from your roof and you did not have that wall, you will be responsible for their death. It is your fault. You are completely responsible. And the same is true with a hole that an animal falls into If it's your fault, you are completely responsible and you must compensate that animal's owner 100% because it is completely your fault. It's not that you could claim um, some sort of lesser homicide because, oh, well, I didn't mean to do it or I didn't do it at all. They just fell. It was an accident. You can't say that because you have been told what you should do and it is a precautionary step that God says to do. And you didn't do it. So you are 100% responsible if something goes wrong. And that is, of course, when the crime occurs. The act of doing it, again, is not the crime itself. So that is very different than the way the state treats crime today. Now, once a crime has been identified, the next step is consequences and punishments. The first point to make is that the law code is heavily focused on restorative justice, with retributive justice coming at times in the form of the restitution itself and at times in response to the offense that has been committed against God more than the aspect of the offense against another human. When someone is wronged, the goal is to make them whole again or get as close as possible. Theft is an easy example to use. Usually, just having the victim get back the property that was stolen will not put them in a position just as good as they were in before. 
they have had to deal with the inconvenience of the theft, the lack of an ability to use the item for the time it was stolen, the time and effort of dealing with the court case, and so on and so on. It then makes sense that when a crime has occurred, the victim is to be paid back in full, plus extra to cover the other various extra consequences of the ordeal. Consider this example for the relationship between restitution and retribution. This comes from Deuteronomy 22, 28-29. If a man comes upon a girl who is a virgin, but who is not engaged, and he grabs her and has sexual relations with her, and they are caught in the act, then the man who had intercourse with her must give the girl's father one and a quarter pounds of silver shekels, and she will become his wife, because he humiliated her. He may not divorce her as long as he lives." A lot of people would look at that law and think that there is something majorly wrong with that. And uh, in a way, there is, at least in the context of our modern culture. But this was not given in the context of our modern culture. Again, what I always go back to is that the 10 words are the foundation of everything. That is the main thing. That is the thing that applies, that always has applied and always will apply. The, the civil aspect as well as the ceremonial aspects, those are given in context. And so many people take that to different degrees, but just keep that in mind, that those are given in specific contexts, and this is one of those things. This would be part of the civil part of the law. So there's much more to focus on the restorative function of law than punishment of the criminal. In relation to the rest of the law, it is likely that the man deserves death for his act. However, this would result in the woman being much worse off in the end, especially in the culture of this setting, in this context. Having the man pay for his crime in money, time, and commitment is the punishment chosen, not because it is the most fitting for him, although it may just be, but because it is the most restorative for all involved. The woman's parents get the dowry they deserve, the woman gets the security she deserves, and the man is bound to his punishment for life, not only getting punishment he deserves, but also creating the possibility for forgiveness and love to take place at some point in the future. Again, restoration is always the main focus. Another big difference between this law code and others of its time and ours is who carries out the functions of retribution. When retribution is called for and a punishment is to be carried out, this role is to be taken up by the kinsman redeemer, which would be the closest male blood relative in general. This serves multiple functions. First, it alleviates the need for an institutionalized, centralized police force or some equivalent of that. Second, it puts the responsibility of punishment on the individual demanding it. This is similar to how stoning for crimes against God was often to be carried out with the whole town involved, everyone casting a stone themselves, and the accuser is supposed to cast the first stone. So you can't just accuse someone of doing something or convict someone of a crime and not then also take um, take a part in that punishment. That is something that you must be completely convicted about because you are the one then carrying it out afterwards. This dynamic puts the responsibility of the punishment and the responsibility for any misplaced punishment 
on the individual accusers without allowing them to subcontract this duty out to the state or other disconnected individuals. It just doesn't have that option. It's not there in Mosaic Law. So finally, having the kinsman redeemer responsible for carrying out punishment gives an opportunity for true and just forgiveness. No one else has the right to forgive a criminal other than the victims. Again, think of what crime is. It always has a victim, and there always is a criminal. No one else has the right to punish them either. No one can forgive the criminal. No one can punish the criminal other than God and the victim, or the representatives of the victim. The choice is up to the victimized party which is typically represented by the kinsman redeemer. It may seem that capital punishment was mandatory, but that would more be the case if the law was followed strictly by an institutionalized party with the sole purpose of carrying it out. A a government of sorts, with its only job being to carry out a law code. Uh, The, quote, I was just following orders, or the, quote, I didn't write the laws, I just enforced them. Those excuses would be relevant in the case of a state or centralized uh, institution. By regulating the carrying out of punishment to a specific vested individual, the matter becomes much more than a rote bureaucratic function and instead becomes focused on individual human action and responsibility. God gives a few examples of himself, of this himself, in the stories of Cain and Abel, as well as the adulterous woman and Yeshua. So we have Old Testament, New Testament. I tried to draw some relevant examples from both. So by God's own dictates, Cain deserves death for murdering his brother, blood for blood. And again, God doesn't change. It's not that this wasn't the case back then because he didn't say it yet. No, it's always the 10 words have always Uh, been the foundation of all human action and always will be, period. That is God's standard. So yes, it still applied for Cain and Abel. However, not only did God not carry out this just sentence of death, he prevented any other human from doing so too. In seeming contradiction to the Noahide law of whoever sheds human blood by a human being will his blood be shed from Genesis 9-6. Although Noahide law was chronologically after Cain's case, God never changes and his judgments of what is just and deserved does not change either. For a chronologically later example, when Yeshua met the adulterous woman in John 8, it is clear that the proper punishment according to the law for her action was death. Yeshua, however, does not condemn her to this punishment. He even prevents others from doing so too. The woman is forgiven and allowed to walk free. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it's the same thing. God does not change. What a shock. And so the law concerning punishment, these ones are often in place to prohibit vengeance and excessive retribution while acting as a deterrent for the would-be criminal as well. So it serves many different functions here. It is not a mandate for proportional revenge, but rather a boundary to say you may administer just just punishment to the criminal if you have the right to, but the punishment must fit the crime. No more than an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, with no further punishment out of anger and revenge. That's the restriction that this law code creates. 
This law code was to codify true justice by God's standards and act as as a working out example of this to all other peoples. Again, this is the physical representation of God's kingdom. Most other nations escalated punishment so that even a minor crime resulted in drastic punishment, often dismemberment or death. So, for example, if you stole something, they would cut off your hand. Uh, that is not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That is not um, a, a fair punishment for the crime. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. It does carry out some of these other aspects that Mosaic Law does, too, as a deterrent in these kinds of things. But again, it's a very different system because it's based on a different morality, because it's all based on the Ten Words and others are not. So just the decentralized nature of the legal system alone helped prevent abuse of power and corruption. Some of the only institutionalized aspects were the cities of refuge, which weren't involved in the normal legal process, but were rather in existence as a place of safety and appeal to limit fraud, corruption, incorrect judgment, etc., The decentralized local system was primary, and the institutionalized, more centralized system, although fairly still fairly independent, the cities of refuge, were the secondary check on the former. This model was true for the majority of society. Group decisions were made by local, respected elders. The militias were localized by tribe without a national military. Welfare was handled within the local area, and so on and so forth. It was local, it was decentralized, and it was something that was done voluntarily. Very different than today. So, the law called for practices that would provide for the poor without forcing taxation or official programs. Field owners were to leave the extra leftovers in their fields for the poor to glean from. While this was stated in the law, there is no codification for prosecution if a landowner chooses not to obey. Again, we covered this before. Much of the enforcement was social. Farmers were expected to allow gleaning in their fields. Those able were expected to give to those who asked and were in need. Loans were to be given freely without charging interest. The kinsman redeemer was to buy their relative back out of slavery if they had found themselves in such an unfortunate situation. Generosity was commanded and expected, but without the use of force or coercion by any centralized entity. It was simply how any decent human being would and should act. It's as Yeshua pointed out later, uh, Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves wealth here on earth where moths and rust destroy and burglars break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves wealth in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and burglars do not break in or steal. For where your wealth is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if you have a good eye, that is, if you're generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if you have an evil eye, if you are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can be slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. The other aspect of this system to highlight is that one, when one was in need, they were still expected to do the work needed to take care of themselves if possible. Beggars in the street were often crippled or disabled or were often given, and they were often given money directly, but those who gleaned had to go out into the fields themselves. 
harvest themselves, make the food themselves, and do anything else necessary. They had access to food and necessities, but they were expected to do any of the work necessary to attain them without burdening the farmer or anyone else. Again, the beggars in the streets were typically crippled and not able to do these things. That's why they were beggars, and those were the only people that should be beggars. So the law didn't force people to give to the poor. It didn't even force people to allow access to necessities by the poor, but it did say that people should do so. And it's kind of like the precautions of building a wall in your roof or covering a hole, these kinds of things. It wasn't that those were aspects that were enforced by a centralized entity, but they were things that you were to do. They were things that God said to do, period. There were times that taxation of a sort was necessary to fund large projects. However, this there's no provision in Mosaic Law for taxation. There wasn't even a central person or body to collect funds and distribute them in a formal manner. It didn't exist. There was no king or bureaucracy for this collection, nor was there a need to fund these institutions because they didn't exist. Funding society-wide projects was therefore voluntary. Charity was mentioned earlier and was voluntary. The court system was not a tax-funded formal institution, but rather each community had respected elders that voluntarily heard disputes. And then again, you go to the city of refuge if the decision was not something that you agreed with. The priests were the most formal and official bureaucracy established. They were, however, paid in kind for their services, being allowed to keep portions of the sacrifices. They also received voluntary tithes from the people for their services and were given land within the various tribes to live in. The funding of the temple gives a good example of how large projects for the good of the whole society were voluntarily funded. This would come from Exodus chapter 35, verses 4 through 5, 20 through 22, and 29. Had to chop it up for the relevant parts here. So Moses said to the whole community of the people of Israel, Here is what Adonai has ordered. Take up a collection for Adonai from among yourselves. Anyone whose heart makes him willing is to bring the offering for Adonai. Then the whole community of the people of Israel withdrew from Moses' presence, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit made him willing, and brought Adonai's offering for the work on the tent of meeting, for the service in it, and for the holy garments. Both men and women came, as many as had willing hearts. They brought nose rings, earrings, signet rings, belts, all kinds of gold jewelry, everyone bringing an offering of gold to Adonai. Thus every man and woman of the people of Israel, whose heart impelled him to contribute to any of the work Adonai had ordered through Moses, brought it to Adonai as a voluntary offering. So, yeah, that lays it out pretty clearly. Although there's much more to be said, this will suffice for here and now. Mosaic Law gives us a clear representation of God's view of sin, justice, and community. It lays out an earthly example of God's ideal society. In its ideal manifestation, the punishments and restitution would be rarely used, but unfortunately, humans are weak and sinful, and this clear and strict law code was needed to keep man's rebellion of God in check. It also shows the severity of sinful behavior and limits the effects of this unavoidable issue. 
Keep in mind that this law code was given to a specific independent nation, one ruled directly by God and organized through the voluntary interactions of individuals. Only when an individual's rights were violated or a sin egregious to God was committed did any use of force or conflict come into play. Anyone could leave the nation and anyone could enter, provided that any members committed to follow the law and submit to the God of Israel. That's what you had to do to be a member of this nation. Israelites were held to the standards of the law regardless of what lands they were in, and foreigners were held to obedience of the law while they were within the land. Visitors were also afforded the protections and benefits provided by the law. Mosaic law was in the same form of other law codes for the day and stands as a clear earthly representation of God's version of codified rules for society. While all nations are judged according to God's justice, and therefore by the principles of Mosaic law, this law was not to be forced on others or spread through imperial ambition. It was to be used and followed to form a city on a hill that all would see and look up to and emulate. That was the point of the law. And like I said, it it was in the format of other law codes of that time. If you look at the other ancient law codes that we have, there's a certain format for that, an order to that, an organization of them, and Mosaic Law falls right in line with those things. It is an example of how a society uh, should have, uh, should form, should structure a codified law code. And that's what it did. It was this example, this physical, material example of how God said a society should be structured, how people should live, how they should treat each other, these types of things. And again, just keep in mind that this is God himself showing people how a society should operate, and there is no state. There is no centralized institution. There is no government. There is no police force. There's no national military. There's none of this stuff. There's no king. There's no nothing. So I will give the caveat that, yes, there are places where God does dictate how a king should act. However, as God makes very clear that we will handle later, uh, God specifically says that having a king is a rejection of himself. It's kind of like the slavery examples, the one I usually go to. It's it's not that God says slavery is a good thing and the ideal, but when slavery exists, God does say that there are limits to how that should function. And it would be similar to how I've described this aspect of capital punishment and uh, retribution, these types of things, that uh, God does lay out what justice is. And justice at times is the death penalty. Justice is something that God clearly defines, and Mosaic Law is the probably the most clear tool he uses to show what justice, true justice, is. However, God himself, Yeshua himself, they do choose mercy many times. They also choose to carry out the retribution and the punishment of true justice at times. They choose both. And so I do not claim that, and I don't think you should either, that uh, we know the best times to use each aspect. But I would say that it is very clear that both do apply. 
Now, for me personally, if I know that there are times when God would say to show mercy, and there are times when God chooses to punish, and I am not God and have no way of knowing which is which at any given point in time, I will always err on the side of mercy because that is the main principle that Yeshua teaches, that God teaches. It's love. Everything is based on love. You could narrow down the 10 words to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can shorten these things down so much. So you could go from the 613 laws all the way down to these 10 words, all the way down to this single statement with two actions. It's and you could narrow all that down to one word, love. So it's it's this thing that is, I guess it's fractal in nature in many ways. But that really does kind of wrap up what I really wanted to cover for Mosaic Law. Again, I could get into a lot of these various laws and how they applied and why they were the way that they were, given the culture that they were manifested in, all of these types of things. But that's not really what I'm doing here. That would be an entire season itself of just Mosaic Law. Uh, So uh, you can deal with this shorter version. I think it is a good one. So we will stop there and I will get into Judges next episode. So Judges, uh, that seems to be a time period when people didn't have a king and they did what was right in their own eyes. Hey, look, anarchy. How does that work? Uh, Not so well. And so uh, in a way, that is true. In a way, that is not. Uh, I will do that one. And then I might, depending on how long that takes, and I don't think it'll take that long. So I am hoping that I can then also get into the kings of Israel. So maybe I can do a short uh, time on both of these things, and they would make a very good comparison study between the two, where you look at judges, a time period when there was no king, then you look at the kings of Israel, the time period when there was kings, and kind of compare the two and look at the different aspects and these types of things. So uh, I do think that's what I'll do. That's at least my plan. We'll see how long it takes. And then after that, we've got Daniel and Daniel's prophecy, and then God's use of nations and his view of how um, a nation should act, these types of things, how he judges nations. And uh, that'll wrap up the Old Testament kind of overview of these highlighted aspects. So if there is anything else that I have not mentioned and that I didn't say I'm about to cover in the next few episodes, then please do reach out. If there's something else, Old Testament, that you definitely want me to cover, then let me know and I can try to work that in. I know there's all kinds of things we could cover, but I I think these are the most important. These are the most common. These are the most clear. And so that's why I'm trying to go over these first before we really get into a more specific study, a more commentary style, uh, getting into the book of Matthew and some other stuff. So that's where we are. That's where we're going. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for the supporters of the show, mainly on Patreon, but I also have the Subscribestar option or cryptocurrency options. Thank you very much for financially supporting the show. That's how I pay for the hosting fees and all the random little things that I have to pay for to do this show. So thank you very much. If anybody else is interested in supporting the show, please do go to patreon.com slash our foundations, I believe. Uh, The link will be in the show notes so you can find it there or you can send crypto or do whatever you want to do. 
But if you do want to support, that would be greatly appreciated. There's even some perks if you do it on Patreon or Subscribestar. You can reach out to me directly if you do it another way and still want those perks of you get a free piece of merchandise and a request and these types of things. So if you're interested, do that. Uh, If you would like to support in other ways, you can leave a rating, you can leave a review, you can send me an email and give me some feedback, all different kinds of ways of supporting the show. You could tell someone else about it. Lots of different things. Make a post on social media. Follow me on Twitter at at Our Foundations PC. Lots of different options, but I will leave that to you to do as you see fit, and I will be back next time. Until then, I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye. (laughs) Bye-bye.